Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of The Long Short. And this week we catch up with Amos Daniel Austin, Director of US Policy and Regulation, to get an update on the key regulatory issues impacting the private funds industry. Over the next 30 minutes, Daniel recaps the industry view regarding the private funds proposal, his reaction to the new SEC proposals to include certain market participants as dealers or government securities dealers, the trio of proposals out of the SEC's Division of Trading and Markets that relate to the reporting of securities loans, uh, securities-based swaps and short sales, as well as new rules being proposed regarding ESG disclosure. Indeed, a significant undertaking by our US-based team. And all of this, of course, cannot be achieved without the significant input from our members and the various working groups that they participate in. We trust that you find this episode useful. And if you do, please like and rate the show on your preferred podcast platform so that others can find our content too. Earlier in the spring, we spoke with Amos Daniel Austin, Director of US Policy and Regulation, to get his reaction to the wide-sweeping proposals being put forward by the SEC regarding the private funds industry, as well as other proposals impacting on the alternative funds industry. With the deadline for industry feedback on the private funds proposal now passed, we thought now would be a good time to check in with Daniel and get an update on these and other US industry regulatory developments. Daniel, welcome back. Tom, Drew, thanks for uh, having me back. Happy to... uh chat again. Uh, Daniel, the last time you joined us on the long short, we discussed a flurry of SEC proposals that were released in February, including the private funds proposal, as well as proposals that were issued in Q4 of last year. Could you update our listeners on this and other SEC engagement that AMA has conducted since the beginning of the year? Sure, Tom. Yeah, the, the last time I spoke with you guys uh, in, the, in the spring, it was uh, quite a time. February was probably a one-of-a-kind month in terms of uh, proposals out of the SEC. Maybe haven't seen anything like it since after Dodd-Frank, uh, like you mentioned uh, a second ago, the private funds proposal. So there was a proposal for cybersecurity for advisors and registered investment companies. There was the proposal to accelerate the settlement time from two days to one day. So other words, uh, T plus one, and then changes to the beneficial ownership regime which are schedules 13 D and G. And then finally a short selling proposal and a reopening of the securities lending uh, comment period. At that time, AMA was also working on responses to form PF amendments and the securities based swaps uh, reporting proposal. And I think I counted it up since I believe Q4 last year, there have been 30 proposed or reopened comment periods, which is just extraordinary. Uh, to date, AMA has responded to 11 of those, and we plan to respond to at least three more of those pending. 
and maybe providing supplemental materials to others. We've also engaged with several of the commissioners and staff. Uh, we've met with commissioners Crenshaw, Purse, and Lee, and also met with staffs, uh, the Division of Investment Management on the private funds proposal, Form PF, and the cybersecurity rulemaking. We've met with trading and markets on short selling securities based swaps and securities lending. And then finally, corporate finance on the beneficial ownership proposal. So it's been quite a couple of months uh, for the for the AMA GRA staff that's particularly focused on, on U.S. matters. So this is our government and regulatory affairs team, of course, um, uh, uh, with yourself um, at the, in D.C., Daniel. And then, of course, we've got our other colleagues down spread to, throughout the country, not to mention the global influence that we have across our membership. But all of that working together you know, with our members and with the wider industry, you know, makes for a very impactful um, engagement. Yeah, a huge amount there too to unpack. So I'm I'm just going to take those in order, just just for my own benefit as much as for our listeners. Uh, when we last spoke, you mentioned that the private funds proposal was probably one of the most significant rulemakings a U.S. financial regulator has undertaken, at least in recent years, particularly with regard to the asset management industry. Could you just remind our listeners about this proposal and uh, now just update with the the industry arguments that AMA has put forward in reaction to the proposal? Of course. Yeah. And and like I I said, it's certainly a significant rulemaking. We've seen uh, reports from the journal, the FT, other newspapers uh, reporting on this particular proposal over the past several months. So the proposal, a brief overview, some of the high-level items. It's a pretty lengthy proposal, uh, probably over, I think, 350 pages uh, with hundreds, I think, about in total over 800 questions in the proposal. Uh, So it would require each private fund to determine if a fund is a liquid or a liquid fund to prepare a quarterly statement for that fund would also require each fund that a uh, registered investment advisor advises to undergo a financial statement audit. There would also be prohibitions around preferential treatment, in other words, side letters and other arrangements. And then finally, it would pro- prohibit charging certain fees and expenses to a private fund or its investments, and also prohibit certain limitations of liability, uh, among other uh, significant changes to the relationship between an LP and a GP. In our response, AMA uh, laid out several main points uh, for the commission to consider. The proposal was really developed without sufficient consideration of the sophistication of private fund investors. The commission seems to paint all um, investors as a, you know, for, for lack of a better term, a mom and pop investor, when in reality, these are very sophisticated uh, institutional investors that have uh, strong outside representation from law firms and others. Uh, The proposal also really failed to conduct an appropriate cost-benefit analysis, which is something that if you talk to many in the industry, is something that is consistent among most, if not all, of the recent proposals that we've seen. And I'll get into that uh, shortly when we talk about the dealer proposal. AMA also discussed the quarterly statement requirement and that it would be unnecessary and duplicative. 
The mandatory audit requirements would eliminate the surprise examination option in the custody rule for advisors and would also be burdensome for non-U.S. private fund advisors. The, the limitation of liability would probably be one of the most significant aspects of the proposal. In our response, we uh, argued that the limitation of liability would ignore decades of standard industry practice and impose a greater standard of care on private fund advisors than on registered fund advisors with respect to retail investors, which is an incredible departure from the current uh, industry practice. Uh, These changes will likely lead to an increase in management fees. And this is something that the commission seems to uh, perhaps ignore or not consider uh, in, in its in the proposal. Finally, the prohibition on preferential treatment and side letters would significantly disrupt existing commercial arrangements. I believe the implementation period for a final rule would be one year uh, from publication in the Federal Register. So this would require funds and their investors to renegotiate nearly every uh, document that they've uh at any type of side letter or other uh, item that may be deemed preferential treatment within a year. So it would certainly, uh, it would make it mean a lot of work for the uh, fund lawyers out there. Um, it would also chill communications between advisors and investors and limit their ability to receive personalized and favorable terms going forward. Daniel, another very consequential rulemaking that the commission has undertaken has to do with revisions to the definitions around dealer and a government securities dealer. Why is this rulemaking so significant and what would it mean for asset managers and the markets that they operate in? Yeah, Tom, this is probably if you asked our members the top two rules that the SEC has proposed in terms of, I guess, significance or impact on the industry, private funds would probably be one, number one, and then the dealer proposal would be a close number two. Uh, the commission has proposed to amend the definitions of dealer and government securities dealer to focus on market participants that they deem would routinely provide liquidity. They've proposed three qualitative standards and one quantitative standard that relates just to government securities. The proposal appears to focus primarily on principal trading firms but hedge funds and private fund advisors would also be captured if any of the standards are met and will be be required to register as either a dealer or government securities dealer. And it's in our response, AMA highlighted the incredible direct and indirect cost on market participants to register and comply with the dealer regime. The commission's estimates, even for the smallest of entities, would estimate that it would cost around over a million dollars for initial registration with the commission and then to become a member of the Consolidated Audit Trail, plus hundreds of thousands of dollars in annual cost and compliance. We believe, and many others have a similar line of thinking, that this will lead to a change of behavior in securities and government securities market and it will have a negative impact on efficiency, competition, capital formation, and liquidity. However, the commission in the proposal, although it uh, acknowledges that this could occur, it does, in their estimate, they actually say, quote, it's, this impact is uncertain. They don't make any attempt to try to 
put into you know quantitative terms or qualitative terms what impact this might have and it really it goes back to the comment i made earlier the there's a lack of a thorough and appropriate cost benefit analysis in many of these rules even if a rulemaking like this went forward and members like ours hedge funds and advisors would be required to register as dealers the commission in the proposal gives no explanation or guidance as to how the dealer framework framework would work for funds and advisors. It would be trying to put uh, you know, a square peg into a round hole. For example, the net capital rule is just, would it apply to the fund? Would it apply to the advisor? How would that work? Is it even possible? It seems to assume that existing organization and structures that are out there in the private funds industry would just neatly fit into a new dealer regime. And uh, that's one of the points we really tried to hit home with in our response and encourage the commission for any final rule to exclude private fund advisors and the funds they manage from any final rule and any type of uh, possible subjection to becoming a dealer. We also argued to withdraw the quantitative standard because it has no basis for determining dealer status. And it, it would really capture a number of unintended entities that are engaged in cash management, for example. It's a $25 billion threshold over a course of four out of the prior six months. And if you look at an event, uh, if there's a dash for cash or uh, a, a sell-off in, in treasury securities, whatever it may be, Large pensions, insurers, even sovereign wealth funds could technically be captured under this quantitative standard. We also explained that there needs to be a reassessment of the qualitative standards because as they're written, they're incredibly ambiguous. This draft would capture hundreds of funds that even engage in the most traditional hedge fund strategies that have never considered or have never been considered nor associated with dealing. EMA are delighted to host our annual conference dedicated to ESG this September the 8th in London. The full-day program will address the basics of ESG integration, the latest development in investor demands, new trends and themes, and the regulatory updates the firms need to know about. This is a prime opportunity to network at the industry and to hear unparalleled insights from speakers about how to approach responsible investment techniques across a range of strategies. To register or to find out more, visit the AMA website. We hope to see you there. And Daniel, apologies, I'm going to have to jump around a little bit here, but there's just so much to get through. And I wanted to get back to the uh, the trio of proposals that you mentioned earlier out of the SEC's Division of Trading and Markets that related to the reporting of securities loans and securities-based swaps and also short sales. Uh, the latest being the short sale proposal, which is notably different from the other two. Can you just help our listeners understand uh, what the difference is with the short sale proposal compared to the other two? Sure, Drew. Yeah. So at the, I think it was in December, no, it couldn't have been December of last year. They all, they've all kind of run together at this point. I know it was in Q4, but the commission proposed a rulemaking that uh, pertained to securities lending. 
Loan level data would need to be reported to FINRA within 15 minutes and disclosed as soon as practicable. Legal names to the loan would not be included, but there would be other very granular data that could indicate uh, the market participant or certainly a, uh, a group of market participants that uh, perhaps could be affecting a loan of, of that size or nature. Then we saw the uh, securities-based swaps reporting proposal, and that would identify the market participant by name and LEI and would be filed uh, T plus one, and then that data would become immediately available. And then we, in February, it was interesting, we saw the short sale proposal, which I think many in the industry were concerned that the commission was going to take a route that they did similar to the securities-based swaps proposal. However, they decided to aggregate and anonymize data that, uh, short sale data that managers would report. The disclosure element of the securities lending and securities-based swaps rules in particular would have a number of negative market impacts uh, and impacts that we, that we highlighted in our responses to those rulemakings, reduced liquidity, forced disclosure of valuable research, front-running, and copycat trading. In our uh, responses to securities-based swaps and short sale, we make a point to try to hit home the the inconsistencies between these three rulemakings and also where there's overlap and questioning why a route similar to the short sale proposal of aggregating and anonymizing was not taken with securities lending and securities based swaps and and um you know these proposals have have come from the same division within the agency right um so why then have they taken a different approach then regarding the short sale disclosure um, and has then the aggregate effect of these new reporting requirements really being considered or examined? Yeah, Tom, that's, that's a good point. The it, it is noteworthy to highlight that these three proposals have all come out of the same division with the within the SEC, the Division of Trading and Markets, yet they all two, one of them takes such a different approach than the other two. And it was it was the last in time with these three proposals. However, and I alluded to it earlier, there we did respond to a reopening of the comment period for the securities lending proposal. And the commission reopened that comment period simultaneously with proposing its short sale proposal. And in our supplemental response to the securities lending proposal, we highlighted that difference between these rules and why the commission is taking these uh, different routes when it comes to uh, financial products and reporting that have such similarities. And regarding the aggregate effect, we've tried to point that out in our comments and then also in our meetings. And it's really something that is very worrisome and not just with these proposals from trading and markets, but so many of the others we've seen over the past uh, eight plus months where there is significant overlap, yet there appears no real consideration of the aggregate impact that these proposals will have on the private fund industry and just the broader financial markets. And Daniel, we're going to have to change tack once again, which I think, again, just, just reiterates the, the sheer breadth of the, the proposals that you guys in the US have been facing. But we must, because the SEC has not even slowed down yet either, as it has 
issued a proposed rule that would, among other things, require certain ESG strategy disclosures for funds and advisors, as well as a proposal to amend the names rule. And at the same time, we also saw the CFTC issue a request for information regarding climate-related financial risks. So it appears the CFTC may consider an ESG disclosure framework of their own. So this begs the question, (laughs) can you give a brief overview of the SEC's ESG proposal for funds and advisors and the CFTC's RFI and and what issues may come to pass as a result of both agencies uh, seemingly pursuing separate disclosure frameworks? And apologies there for for the acronym SOUP. (laughs) Right. So the, the SEC published two proposals, I guess it was about uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, and the you mentioned the names rule, and I think more relevant probably for our members is the ESG strategy disclosures for funds and advisors. And we're still uh, reading through that proposal and uh, assessing its ramifications for our members. But at a high level, the proposal would classify uh, three types of funds, integration, ESG-focused, and impact funds, and integration being at the uh, lowest level with the impact funds being at the highest, uh, varying degrees of disclosure requirements for those funds. There would be additional disclosures for certain funds, particularly those that are ESG-focused and impact funds around proxy voting and engagement, and then also greenhouse gas emission reporting. You also mentioned the the CFTC uh, request for information on climate-related financial risk. That's uh, has about, I think, 34 or so questions in it on a number of topics. Uh, the proposal in the, the preamble kind of intimates that responses could inform a future rulemaking. And one of the things that... Uh, that we are concerned about is that, that many of our members are joint registrants with the CFTC and SEC and would, assuming both agencies finalize rulemaking on the topic, become beholden to new sets of reporting and disclosure requirements. So we would hope and encourage both agencies to coordinate in these efforts as a common set of criteria would be useful for investors and then more workable and less costly for joint registrants in the process. Daniel, the comment period um, for these rules, have they now closed since? The recent ESG proposals out of the the SEC for funds and advisors and then also the names rule remain open. And the comment period for the climate disclosures for corporate issuers closes on June 15th, to which AMA is responding. Thank, thank you, Daniel. And um, so what then is Amos' plan you know, over the summer period um, regarding these remaining proposals? And, uh, what work do you have in the pipeline even? So we will begin and have begun engaging with relevant staff and commission offices. Uh, we've also been monitoring to see uh, when the SEC's regulatory flexibility agenda will be released uh, that typically lays out uh, rulemakings that are being considered uh, or in the drafting process uh, within the commission. Uh, that has not been released. 
yet. Uh, we have seen Chair Ginsler in a recent speech talk about a proposal uh, that would certainly change uh, the the market structure for uh securities in a significant way in regards to payment for order flow and best execution and other types of topics that came out of the the GameStop events of January 2021. Well, Daniel, we've absolutely peppered you with questions there. So thank you so much for providing such a valuable update for for those of us that aren't able to uh, check in on these many proposals coming out of the U.S., day to day. Uh, I'm sure we will have you on the long shot again, but I hope we have less to talk about next time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks. Daniel's DC Digest, huh? We'll come we'll have you back again very soon. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. I like the I like the alliteration. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.